Experiment. Okay. Do you want some fruit salad? Thanks. I'm not hungry. Hello, everyone. Matt here, and welcome to Looking Back at Lost where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today, I'll be covering episode 304, entitled Every Man for Himself. This is the 53rd hour of the series, and there are 68 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for the episode. In flashbacks, Sawyer is in prison, trying to befriend Munson, a man who has hidden $10 million. He warns Munson that the warden is trying to con him out of his money. Eventually, Munson, worried that his wife will find where he has hidden the money, enlists Sawyer's help in moving the stash. Sawyer then reveals this information to the warden in exchange for a reduced sentence and a part of the money, which he puts in a bank account for Clementine Phillips, a baby that previous con victim Cassidy Phillips has told him is his daughter. The warden sarcastically congratulates Sawyer on lying and cheating his way out of the prison. At Hydra Island, as Kate and Sawyer watch the others carry a critically injured Colleen, who was shot by Sun the night before, Sawyer realizes that the injury was inflicted by someone back at camp, and devises a plan to break out of his cage. When Sawyer attempts to carry out his plan, Ben knocks him unconscious and has him carried to the Hydra station. Sawyer wakes up to find himself strapped to a table where Ben, Tom, and two others watch over him. Sawyer is gagged before inserting a large hypodermic needle into his chest. When Sawyer awakens, Ben enters, carrying a rabbit in a cage. He shakes the cage vigorously, causing the rabbit to suddenly collapse, presumably dead. Ben informs Sawyer that they have fitted him with a pacemaker. Should his heart reach 140 beats per minute, his heart would explode. Ben threatens to implant one in Kate if Sawyer should tell her of his ordeal. Meanwhile, Juliet begs Jack to help operate on Colleen. Upon arriving in the operating theater, Jack notices some x-rays, but Juliet informs him that they are not Colleen's. During the surgery, Jack tries to save Colleen, but she eventually dies. Later, Jack informs Juliet that there was nothing they could do with Colleen, then asks about the x-rays, which Jack knows belonged to a 40-year-old man with a spinal tumor and asks who he is there to save. Danny Pickett, aware that the Oceanic Flight 815 survivors are responsible for the death of Colleen, takes his anger out on Sawyer by violently beating him. Sawyer refrains from fighting back. Kate pleads with him to stop. Danny ceases only after Kate admits to loving Sawyer. Afterward, Kate notices a gap in her cage and manages to climb through. She tries to free Sawyer, but he bitterly refuses, remembering Carl's escape and bloody capture. Kate returns to her cage, insisting that she would not abandon him, and tells Sawyer that she lied about loving him so that Danny would stop. The next day, Ben takes Sawyer for a walk to high ground. Sawyer learns that he has no pacemaker. It was merely a con to prevent Sawyer from leaving. Ben shows him the same rabbit from the day before, which had been merely sedated. Ben reveals to Sawyer that they are on a completely different island and that escape is impossible. Last but not least, 
On the Survivor's Beach, Desmond offers to fix Claire's roof, but takes it back after Charlie offers to do it himself. Desmond then uses one of Paolo's golf clubs to build a lightning rod next to Claire's hut. As a storm brews, waking up Aaron, lightning strikes the golf club instead of Claire's hut. Pearly looks on in amazement as, again, Desmond seemed to have had a glimpse of the future. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. This certainly was an interesting episode because I found myself, as the episode went on, starting to get more and more grumpy. Uh, I kind of felt that some of that early season three malaise was indeed returning. Uh, I don't know that this flashback is particularly uh, important or useful, uh, and that sort of thing, which we'll discuss as we, as we go through the episode. Um, the flip side is that there's kind of more there there to this episode, uh, which is to say, you know, in last week's episode, it was very, very action-driven, not a lot of uh, interesting bones to chew on. It was just kind of go, 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 go. Uh, with this, although I would call it an inferior episode to to 303, I think that there is certainly a, uh, there's just kind of more to it, uh, which which will be interesting, uh, certainly for the podcast, where, you know, are we going to get a more thoughtful and in-depth podcast this week uh, than last week in an episode that I didn't like as much? Uh, I suspect we will. Uh, anyhow, uh, the episode starts with um, a swirly camera move this uh, time around Desmond. The last time we saw it, it, of course, was that kind of 360 shot, or I guess it's properly a 180 shot uh, around of Locke. This time we have, of course, Desmond pondering. It's it's so welcome to see this version of Desmond, uh, someone who I was going to say is in control of his world. That, that's not true. I don't think he entirely understands what is going on with him. But certainly is a far cry from the guy trapped in the hatch. No other kind of option. No other chance at, at uh, doing anything other than he's doing. Here we see someone who, uh, you know, has the ability to be making decisions and changing the world around him for better or for worse, as we'll, we'll learn as the Desmond storyline goes on in these well, I suppose uh, for the season as a whole. But anyhow, Desmond, of course, offers to fix the roof, which to our eyes doesn't appear to have any problem. Uh, it is, of course, another hint uh, for first-time viewers that he can see snippets of the future. I think, too, you know, the first time you see these episodes, you're, you're saying, you know, can Desmond really see the future? What other options are there? Um, how deeply are they going to go into some sort of uh, you know, dare I say it, time travel device. You know, this the, the notion of time travel is something that in season one, uh, I think reference was made to, uh, was it Saeed? You know, there's kind of one of these joking references. Maybe it was uh, Hurley and Saeed on the beach, you know, uh, when, when they were listening to music. Uh, you know, could it be from time travel? You know, ABC was very, very concerned with the notion that there was any time travel aspect to the show. I suppose once it got its uh, its creative steam up, as well as the viewership, you know, ABC backed off. You know, kind of if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But um, that particular part uh, of the teaser act, that scene on the beach, ends with Charlie saying, "We'll have to get that guy another button to push." As always, great to see the comic timings of Dominic Monaghan. With that, we cut to Jack in his prison room. Juliet is bringing him pie. And Jack probes into who is in charge and whether people make decisions together or not. 
Juliet stresses the latter, that people do work together here. It's not kind of the man in charge and people go around scurrying to follow those orders. Uh, it is, of course, ironic that she thinks that because uh, I dare say few other others uh, would feel the same way. They would they would see him and uh, see Ben in charge. Um, and indeed, just on cue of Juliet saying, no, we make decisions together. Ben enters, he's barking orders, as well as dropping the tidbit that the sub is back and that there's a situation. So certainly, uh, to my knowledge, it's the first uh, mentioning of there being a submarine. Uh, I think that certainly first-time viewers are meant to jump all over that and then just start to really put it all together. This is how the others have been able to attack uh, by water. They've been able to attack without the sound of that uh, beat-up boat uh, approaching, let's say, at the end of Season 1. And uh, just, you know, I mean, again... Uh, on the reverse, you know, the flip side of him saying the sub is back, we, you know, here after the end of the series just say, you know, well, yeah, okay, yeah, they've been using the sub, of course. So always a matter of perspective. With that, we're still in the teaser act. We cut to some shaky cam footage of a bloody person on a stretcher in the woods. It's, of course, Colleen, who sun shot last week. Uh, then we cut to Pickett, uh, just about to collect Sawyer for rock-breaking duty. Uh, there's some great dialogue where Sawyer is needling him. Down to calling Pickett Chinatown due to his nose. And of course, if you're not familiar with Chinatown, uh, there's the the infamous scene in it where uh, Detective Jake Giddis, played by uh, Jack Nicholson, he's uh, essentially given the warning that he's uh, you know investigating this case too much. And then two baddies, one of which is played by a director and all-around scuzzball, Roman Polanski, comes along, sticks a switchblade up his nose, and then we see his we see his nose get cut. And it's a pretty uh, horrific scene, but uh, you know, hence the joke there. Sawyer calling Pickett Chinatown because he has a, a bandaged nose, uh, which, if you haven't seen the movie, Jake Giddis spends much of the rest of the movie with you know decreasingly sized bandages, and then you can see the the stitching there in his nose. So. Anyhow, Pickett is just about to throw punches when the different story threads on Hydra Island come together. Ben and Juliet appear. They meet Tom Friendly and the wounded Colleen. At that point, Sawyer is the one to really put a knot on it all, bringing it all together with one great end to the teaser act. What? Been on this rock long enough to realize they ain't in the business of shooting each other. We did it. Our team. He's smiling? Damn right I'm smiling. Because we just got our ticket out of here. It certainly is a nice affirmational moment there. We're not quite sure what the plan is, and indeed it, it does never fully come to fruition. But uh, it's nice nonetheless to kind of, uh, you know, it, it really is a case of, you know, score one for our side. Do I know for sure that Colleen you know, should have been shot and should have died merely because they went on uh, on the Elizabeth and that, that son felt uh, back into a corner? Perhaps not, but you know what? In the larger struggle that we see going on, it's it's nice. It's really really nice to see that you know our our heroes you know have 
have taken one of them down, uh, particularly in light of some of the evils of the, uh, oh, the Ethans and the Goodwins of the world. So anyhow, after the title card, Sawyer decides to take advantage of the chaos by preparing his breakout plan. Get uh, the cage water outside the cage, shock himself and the guard, whoever the guard might be, he's assuming Pickett, uh, by hitting the button, and then grab the keys. Kate asks about Jack, and Sawyer says, It's every man for himself. Which is convenient, because that's the episode title. And it also takes us to what I think overall is an anemic flashback. It's one where Sawyer is a con, <laughs> as in convict, not a confidence man. So I suppose there's a bit of uh, <laughs> bit of irony there. Anyhow, he's a convict who hates the warden. That's what we see. And he's trying to buddy up to Munson, who has stolen $10 million. And like that, the flashback basically ends. We're back uh, on Hydra Island. Mighty Ben himself approaches Sawyer's cage. The scene is all about whether he'll uh, fall into the electric trap, or at least the beginning part of the scene. Many viewers will remember, of course, that Ben has a camera uh, trained on the cages. So I think, in a large part, the outcome is predictable. Although, on the, f- the flip side, I suppose it's possible that in all the chaos, perhaps Ben hasn't uh, heard about this, this breakout plan of Sawyer's. Which is not possible, as we learn. Ben is caught by Sawyer but Ben has seen that the power is turned off. Uh, He then gives Sawyer just a nice old royal beating. Ben has one of those extendable police baton sticky things, and uh, it's a reminder that Ben might be uh, of slighter frame than Sawyer, but Ben knows his way around uh, any situation, including if he's been grabbed by the larger and more muscular Sawyer in this case. Um. There's an extended cut to black then, uh, which uh, is mirroring that Sawyer has been knocked out. Always a fun little trick, a cheap trick, but a good one. Sawyer wakes up in a room much like Jack's, uh, kind of one of these marine surgical rooms with a nice big table, which uh, Sawyer is on and straps to hold him down. And just as he wakes up, we hear Tom explaining that the comms have been down for two days now. It's yet another reference to how powerful that swan hatch explosion was. The scene proceeds with Sawyer, uh, about to be injected with a very, very, very big needle. Somehow Jack overhears this via the intercom on the wall. You know, the one that we're told doesn't work. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what to make of the intercom in this episode. Um, Was he lied to when told it didn't work? Uh, That's one option, I suppose. But then he, he certainly didn't hear Christian... Uh, initially through the intercom, uh, Christian being dead and all. Uh, Certainly we could pack up that particular uh, instance in Jack's uh, delusion from uh, lack of food and water. So maybe the intercom kind of does partially work, but then it sort of becomes a device where, you know, it's just so that we can, um, I don't know, let Jack in on action going on elsewhere in the the Hydra station. Anyhow, back to that giant needle. We get a three count for the needle going in for real. One, two, and three. The act ends, and we go to commercial. After the act break, we're back on our uh, survivor beach, and Paolo is golfing off by himself, reminding us that he's been off by himself for seasons one and two. At least the character has been, right? Uh, Desmond looks to borrow a club, 
And Paolo dismisses him with the five iron since, he says, if uh, Desmond dies in the jungle, Paolo won't miss the club. How are we supposed to like Nicky and Paolo? They're written as outsiders. They're written as uh, nuisances. They're written as kind of non-entities. You know, he's off, Paolo's off golfing. What are some of the other actions that we see of our beach characters? Well, let's see. Desmond is working to use his time travel mental waves or whatever to stop an injury. Claire's tending to her baby. Charlie is ostensibly tending to the both of them. Hurley's chopping up fruit salad. Uh, presumably the beach is empty, not because they didn't want to pay a bunch of extras or whatnot, but because uh, other people are out, you know, uh, getting water, collecting firewood, uh, fishing, etc. You know, and Paolo's just hanging out with the golf club, being annoying to, you know, Desmond, who I think at this point certainly is a, uh, maybe he's not quite beloved at this point, but he's certainly an appreciated character. He's been entertaining, He's someone whose story we are uh, emotionally invested in. So when you take a character that you like and another character is mean to them and not even mean in an entertaining way, like Sawyer and his nicknames or the Sawyer Jack headbutting, uh, because at the very least with, with, with that stuff, you know, we've seen another side of Sawyer. And we also, there's times that we don't appreciate Jack. So for Sawyer to deflate Jack, you know, it, it's entertaining and enjoyable for us, but Oh, Paolo. Oh, Nikki. What a. Well, although, to be fair, I suppose what? There's. After this, there's five more episodes until they die, so I'll take that. Anyhow, back to people that we do like. Uh, Sawyer wakes up with a bloody, gauzy chest. Uh, Tom enters with White Rabbit number eight. So, you know, as a side note, what are we supposed to. What's the conversation we're supposed to have between episodes? Follow the White Rabbit, Alice in Wonderland, check. No, you know, the number eight check eight looks like infinity check i mean none of this particularly goes anywhere but it's just kind of you know i think it's a bone that we're meant to chew on and you know to form our our upon first viewing discussion back there in uh in in the past anyhow ben scares the rabbit to death apparently and maniacally dialogues that it had a pacemaker it got too excited and it died ben says then he continues rather shockingly uh, to say that Sawyer also has a pacemaker now. And if he gets too excited, his heart will explode. All of this seems rather unbelievable that a teensy weensy little cut could lead to a pacemaker. Uh, you know, I'm no medical expert, but it just strikes me as not that believable. Um, even when a little bit later in the episode, when Sawyer looks at his cut, it just doesn't look that bad. Um, perhaps I'm completely mistaken. Perhaps pacemakers are teensy and it just requires a little, a uh, little incision. But even then I would assume that that, you know, if it is a small incision, it's one of these, you know, done with uh, a scope and done by the best surgeons, not kind of the ragtag group of, you know, medical idiots um, I suppose too, there's a bit of, maybe not, not foreshadowing isn't the right word, but there's a bit of, uh, mm, taking the stuffing out of the notion that Sawyer has a pacemaker when it's revealed that their best doctor, Juliet, is a fertility doctor who can't do surgery or can't particularly handle, uh, serious surgery. So, you know, at least it's internally consistent that he doesn't have the pacemaker and, uh, 
you know, to be fair, too, yes, it's Ben who's saying this, so it might be feeling like a Ben con, but can Sawyer really afford to not believe what he's saying? You know, what's the alternative? Sawyer's wrong, it's really a pacemaker, and Sawyer dies. So, anyhow, um, it's also around this point, kind of ironically, about 20 minutes into the episode, and here we are 20 minutes into the podcast, um, the episode is starting to feel a little sluggish. It's a crazy Ben plan. Again. Sawyer and Kate are still in the cages. Sawyer's unwilling to talk about what just happened because he's under orders not to say anything, so Kate doesn't get another fictional pacemaker, too. At least, you know, Kate undresses and we get her naked back to look at. And then followed by the comedic effect of Sawyer's heartbeat monitor beeping because he's getting dangerously close to that pacemaker danger zone from looking at her dressing naughty boy so we're then nearing the end of the act at this point what great hook ends the act you know some of the the great hooks that we've had you know from any show there's you know this person is about to die or the sudden return of someone that we haven't seen in a long time or you know the bomb is ticking the bomb's about to explode these are all great hooks to end acts how does this act end Sawyer pours a bucket of water over his head, and his pace slows down. Boom. Cut to commercial. Yawn. Double yawn, in fact, because we return to Sawyer's flashback. An increasingly uncompelling flashback story, exacerbated by the return of Cassidy and the revelation that she put him in prison. There's the mildly interesting twist that Cassidy claims Sawyer uh, has a daughter with her, the daughter now named Clementine. But I would even argue, you know, what do we care at this point in the episode? They're trapped on the island now. For as far as we know on first viewing, they're on the the island until the end of the show. Granted, that's not completely true, but it's our assumption upon first viewing. It just kind of feels hollow. Sawyer may or may not have a kid, and he's in prison, and he can't do anything about it. And then he ends up on the island where he can't do anything about it. Now, yes, there is kind of the, you know, there's the bit at the end of the episode, or at least the end of the flashback episode, where he gives his cut of the money, cut of Munson's money, to to Clementine. But, I mean, what does that tell us about Sawyer? This is the, 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 the crux of the season three flashback problems. What does it tell us about Sawyer? He's got a rough exterior, a rough interior, but still has a little part of his heart, which is gold. We knew that a zillion times over. We knew that in the first Sawyer flashback where he couldn't carry through with that con because there was uh, a kid involved because it would have you know ruined the kid as much as the wife and the husband. So anyhow, back, we can discuss that more certainly as we get to the, uh, the end of his flashback. Uh, but, uh, you know, and the whole prison flashback. Speaking of island prisons, Kate starts to talk escape, the flashback having ended. And Sawyer poo-poos it. And with that, we cut to Jack's prison, where he's hearing something from the intercom again. Uh, It's interrupted by Juliet asking for help, ostensibly with Colleen. Uh, There's a neat little scene. On the one hand, it feels a bit, I don't know, pedestrian. On the other hand, it's interesting. They need to physically get him from the one spot where he is to the operating area that's a little bit more open to the others. So... He's brought with a bag over his head past the bear cages 
There's the neat and frustrating trick that the others blare the alarm so Kate and Jack and Kate and Sawyer can't shout to Jack. I mean, it's neat. I guess it kind of shows the uh, the geography of the place that he is quite close. On the flip side, it's like, you know, do we really need to see him being walked from one spot to the next? When the dramatic tension of the moment is, you know, I need your help with Colleen. Colleen's blood is all over uh, Juliet. You know, it's it it falls flat like some of the, the various parts of this episode do. Uh, anyhow, back inside, Ben yells at Juliet for bringing Jack, saying this isn't why, before being cut off. It's interesting but not surprising uh, that Ben would hold Jack's surgical skills for himself. And basically let Colleen fall by the wayside. You know, Ben is trying to get this whole big plan in order to have Jack essentially commit to the spinal surgery and to fix Ben's uh, tumor. And he doesn't want to spoil that on Jack, who, you know, for all his flaws, is, is an honorable person, certainly is always willing to help, always wants to help, and is most capable of helping in a surgical situation. Maybe he's not the best leader when, you know, Claire gets stolen uh, or this sort of thing. But certainly, I think, you know, Jack as a man of honor and as a, a skilled doctor, you know, I mean, the, the in addition to having taken the, the, the oath, just in general, he would say, this is, you know, my captor, one of my captors is wounded. Uh, and I could, you know, help save a life. He's going to do that. So kind of shame on Ben for really holding uh, his uh, his Jack card so close to his vest. At that point, Jack starts to scrub in and takes a quick look at spinal x-rays, which he's told aren't Colleen's. It's an interesting kind of story take. Let's look at the kind of the pacing here. Previous scene, Ben saying, this isn't why Jack's here. That he doesn't finish the sentence, but it's, you know, this isn't what Jack's not here to help Colleen. Next scene, look, here's x-rays of somebody who's in bad shape. Uh, obviously, we know it's it's Ben's now, but just, you know, an interesting, uh, you know, interesting story decision. Jack's not here for this. He's here for something else. Then we see another something else. Jack's uh, surgery goes quickly as Colleen bites the dust. I love the irony of Juliet explaining that they don't have a working crash cart as there hasn't been a problem like this before. I mean, isn't that just, that's planning for you. You know, no need to plan ahead. We don't, let's, let's look at past, uh, past indicators to help us predict the future. You know, there hasn't been a need for a working crash cart. Therefore, we don't need one. Uh, folly. So at this point in the episode, I could really start to feel my grumpiness starting to mount. This was really starting to feel like the first half of season three as I remembered it. Kind of confusing and impersonal. You know, we're spending all this time, you know, Colleen's dead, but we don't really know her. And we're kind of in the Sawyer camp of, well, she got killed. And that's what, you know, finally chalk went up for the good guys. Um, Jack wasn't able to save her, but it wasn't able to save her, you know, for, for, for any particularly good reason. Not only was she tremendously wounded uh, before she came into the operating room, as we'll, as we'll hear uh, in a bit. Also, it's not for lack of him trying his very best, even if, even if he had been there for the entire surgery. So we don't blame Jack for her dying. We don't 
particularly care that she died. Um, I mean, maybe we're kind of sympathetic to Juliet, but it's not like, you know, Juliet as a fertility doctor, not a surgeon, did her best. So kind of everybody did their best to save a character that we don't particularly know or that we don't particularly care about. So hence my feeling of uh, confusing and impersonal. You know, there's all these mysteries. Why are the two in the cage and Jack in the in the underwater thing? And, you know, it's kind of there's that sheen of confusion, but we're not particularly drawn in as in the hatch, as in uh, orientation films and this sort of thing. So anyhow, with uh, wife Colleen dead, Pickett storms out of the OR to go beat Sawyer, asking Kate if she loves him. Now we can understand his grief. We can understand why Sawyer doesn't fight back, the presumed pacemaker. Uh, we can understand why Kate loudly declares her love for Sawyer, if only so the picket stops. But what we can't understand is why it feels so gimmicky. Again, it's kind of an instance of characters that we don't care much about, like Pickett, uh, are understandably and reasonably upset, but we don't really have any reason to be reasonable with them. Fine, so Pickett's wife has died. You know, I mean, if that's real life, it's tragic. But, you know, I mean, how many times do you see somebody die on TV? You don't sit and go, oh my goodness, well, on Law & Order today, you know, the robber clunked the homeowner in the head and, the, and she died. You know, it, you're, you're completely insensitive to this because they're just the smallest of pawns in this story. And, eh, so what? So Pickett's upset. I mean, we don't we don't feel any... We don't feel any emotional sympathy for him. The fact that he's saying to, you know, of Sawyer, uh, saying to Kate of Sawyer, do you love him? Do you love him? Well, at a certain point, she's just going to say yes, regardless of what's in her heart, because she's picking up on the notion that that will then make Pickett stop beating Sawyer, who at the very least she feels some sort of camaraderie with, uh, having having uh, shared all these common experiences. Um irrespective of whatever deeper emotional interest there might be. Uh, and even if she didn't know him, I, I, I think that just, you know, a decent person, as Kate is deep down, you know, would just want to stop uh, seeing and having another person be uh, so so viciously beaten. So, again, just kind of this continuation of, of you know, we're not, it's an impersonal storyline that's going on. And I suspect that that's going to be, that's kind of the, the the takeaway of Hydra Island, which is we are not personally linked to it. Anyhow, Kate, you know, indeed does loudly declare her love for Sawyer, and the act ends. After the act break, we're back to Sawyer's flashback, where he talks about never getting attached and appears to possibly consider helping out Munson uh, by moving the stolen money. Then we're back at the cages again on Hydra Island, Kate wiggles her way out of the cage by climbing through the top. Speaking of tops, hers wiggles nicely as she climbs out. Kate finds that she can't bust Sawyer's lock, uh, at least not with a little bit of time available to her, and ends up crawling back into her cage. It's interesting enough that for once Kate doesn't run, although she does punctuate it with a rather cheesy, live together, die alone. You know, they're not allowed to quote stuff from the series, are they? Um, with that, there's a creepy cut to Ben watching them in his little TV room. And then we get this lovely, delicious, callous comment from him. 
Tom says that Pickett wants to kill Sawyer, and Ben says, Danny can wait. Just wonderful. With that, we cut to Juliet back in the OR, where Jack apparently is being made to sit with the body as though he's being punished, which itself is rather silly. Uh, I mean, at this point, maybe it's you know silly on Ben's part, not on the show's part, but Jack has been around bodies before, so this isn't much punishment. Jack has lost patience before. Um, so, you know, ooh, Jack's going to have to sit there next to the dead woman. Well, he's kind of... You know, this isn't, again, this isn't somebody who he has some emotional connection to. And it's somebody who, through his vocation and his training, he can be confident that everything was done to save her. So he's not going to sit there with guilt, nor is he going to sit there being creeped out by the fact that it's a dead body. Uh, So anyhow, Juliet now is in the scene. She reveals that she's a fertility doctor. And I think, you know, on first viewing, we're supposed to go, what? Whoa, fertility doctor? How come? What's going on? Um, hey, weren't they stealing babies? What was going on with Claire's baby? You know, we're supposed to be, uh, when Ethan took Claire and and all that, this is the discussion we're meant to be having. Uh, And then Jack says the Colleen was uh, all but dead before being operated on. And then Jack sneeringly dishes really, really good. Are you you just saying that to make me feel better? I don't. I don't care about making you feel better. Fantastic moment there. There's Jack the Jerk giving it back to those captors. And then he starts to probe the larger mystery. I'm going to take you back now. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for bringing you here. Whose x-rays are those? Outside. Those are spinal x-rays, and they belong to a man about 40 years old. And whoever he is, he has a very large tumor on his L4 vertebrae. And I just happen to be a spinal surgeon. So, you tell me, Juliet, who am I here to save? Who am I here to save, he says. I love that Jack is arrogant enough and intelligent enough to put it all together and to figure out that he is there with a purpose. With that, the story heads back to our beach, where Desmond has put that five iron on a long stick contraption thing. He seems unsurprised when a sudden storm hits, and then appears even less impressed when the thunder strikes uh, the golf club, narrowly missing Claire's tent. If anything, in that in that moment, as it's actually you know, happening, as he foresaw it, he looks burdened with the knowledge of what will come. Uh, at that point, too, Charlie looks across at a smiling Desmond, seeing his savior, perhaps. With that, we cut to Sawyer being woken up by Ben. Let's go for a walk, says Ben. As we cut to flashback Sawyer being walked to see the warden, which I will hand it there to the show. I'm not in love with this episode. I'm not in love with the Hydra story. I'm not in love with the flashback story. Nice little moment of Ben saying, let's go for a walk. Cut to Sawyer being walked in flashback. Nice job there. It uh, it turns out, we learn in flashback, that Sawyer was conning his buddy all along, his buddy Munson. Sawyer rats out Munson as part of what we now know was a previously agreed upon plan. The Treasury Department will see Sawyer released and getting a slice of the money once the stolen $10 million is recovered. Sawyer, at that point, you know, in our in our heart, we're supposed to appreciate it. He gives it all over to Clementine Phillips, his possible, probable daughter. 
at that point, I kind of started to wonder if Cassidy conned him. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it's something that the story uh, or that the show never really explores. Eh, you know, I mean, it's kind of just a weak, it's a weak bit of business here. I think this, you know, we could probably safely say that this is the the first uh, the first flashback that we really don't care about a lot. I mean, what's the big revelation? Sawyer has a kid. And as I said before, Sawyer has a kid that he was in no position to care for uh, in with the best of intentions. He couldn't care for the kid while he's in prison. And, uh, you know, it's add to that that Sawyer must recognize that he's not parent material, period. Um, so he's probably making the better decision to not be involved in her life, you know, not to you know, debate that too, too sternly, because I'm sure the daughter would have appreciated to know him and all that. But, you know, he is a bad guy. He is on this path to find the real Mr. Sawyer, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just not a particularly compelling emotional story. Uh, you know, the fact that, I mean, it's, it's, it, it almost borderlines on uh, soap opera-esque. You know, it's one thing for Cassidy to be the one to put him in, to have put him in prison. You know, that that she figured out she was conned and he didn't get away at, at the end of that Cassidy story. After all, he didn't get away. But, you know, the revelation of the child, dun, dun, dun. It's just, you know, eh. And then the fact that they don't go anywhere with it. I mean, I know Cassidy and the child reappear at one point uh, down the line. But it's just not, you know, it's... It's a story that isn't firing on all cylinders, which is why it doesn't get picked up for later mulling beyond that, you know, beyond kind of Kate as the returned Oceanic Six dealio. So, eh, you know, as I say, I'm a bit down with it. Uh, the scene ends with just a great bit of dialogue from the warden, reflecting here how it is that, uh, you know, well, what Sawyer has done to get himself out of prison. Congratulations, Ford. Just lied and cheated your way out of prison. You're a free man. I love that there's kind of a slightly Western tinge to Giacchino's music. I feel like this is something I've mentioned before. I don't recall if it's been with a uh, connection to Sawyer, although it would make sense. Sawyer is our cowboy after all. With the flashback having ended, the story now takes us to Sawyer being taken to the mountaintop, where it's revealed that there is no pacemaker and that the rabbit is still alive. How do I know that's the same bunny? That you can just paint an eight on another one? You don't. And with that, Sawyer, our cowboy, returns with a left hook to Ben's face. You son of a bitch. The rabbit wasn't the thing I wanted to show you. With that, the walk continues, and we get the episode's interesting, but not particularly amazing, shocking conclusion.
You ever been to Alcatraz? Take the tour? Right now you're standing on a small island roughly twice the size of Alcatraz. And that over there? That's your island. The one you've come to know and love. I just wanted you to know there's nowhere to run. You did all this just... just to keep me in a damn cage. We did all this because the only way to gain a con man's respect is to con him. You're pretty good, Sawyer. We're a lot better. Funny thing is, us telling you about the pacemaker wasn't what kept you in line. It was when I threatened her. You work so hard to make her think you don't care, that you don't need her, but... A guy goes nuts if he ain't got nobody. You don't make no difference who the guy is, as long as he's with you. I tell you, I tell you, a guy gets too lonely and he gets sick. What are you talking about? It's from of mice and men. Don't you read? You know, I find myself kind of unable to ever stop when there's a Ben clip. He's just so much smarter than everyone else. He's figured out all the angles, for now anyway. I mean, that, of course, is his great flaw, which will lead to the, to the death of his daughter. But with that... Ben says they need to get Sawyer back to his cage, and the episode rather unceremoniously ends. You know, on first viewing, too, I remember being a little a little um, annoyed at the notion that they were on a smaller island. I kind of felt like, you have this big island, the whole story should take place on it, if you're going to do the on-island story. And fine, if there's going to be you know, uh, the the snowy research station where they, you know, at the end of season two, or Penny picking up her phone. Fine, that's not what I mean. I just kind of felt like the, the, the present day on-island story should take place on the whole island. Now, maybe that was just part of my, you know, initial viewing malaise. Uh, I mean, it, it didn't particularly strike me as bothersome this time. Uh, certainly if there's going to be the Hydra station as... You know, if we look at the the internal reality of the show's universe, uh, then, sure, fine. If you're going to set up this marine research station and you have a little island off the big island, well, yeah, that's where it should be. It's clearly much easier to be catching your dolphins and your sharks and whatnot uh, there than it would be, you know, with deeper water, et cetera, et cetera, than it would be... Um, uh, at some point off the mainland. It would be less construction and less, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that certainly all works. And, you know, I mean, as I said, though, it kind of, the episode as a whole just feels a bit flat. I mean, even down to that ending, you know, we need to get you back to your cage. And the big revelation is that they're on an island by the other island. But worse comes to worse, somebody of Sawyer's physique, you could probably just, you know, swim back to the main island, get your hands on a boat, as he as he ends up doing, you know, then it's a fine little paddle over there. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's like it's not. I, the, look, there's there's no question 
that season three is the point where the show recognized that it was running out of places to go because it was in the perpetual middle of the overall series and that some of these flatter episodes with the best of intentions it's the writers doing their best under that circumstance i would argue that things reach a point where they they need to start to they need to start to make episodes that aren't great and if that leads to some decline in viewership then that's almost the proof that they're looking for but they're a bit scared to do it and i i would suspect that with episodes like this where the big reveal is that Sawyer has a kid that he can't ever have realistically cared for anyway, that they're going to ABC each week and saying, well, you know, this is kind of the best we can do. And the ABC is just saying, oh, whatever, you know, writers are, writers are weak and writers are dramatic and writers are always the ones to not trust themselves. Um, and to see the art as opposed to the business, you know, so just keep working there. Um, perhaps then that does you know they just you know it does turn into that clunker of an episode that we have coming head to us with jack's tattoo uh where just kind of the need to to have proof of the badness of it all but anyhow it, it certainly this isn't a bad episode it just doesn't seem you know as is my complaint with the beginning of season three you know i mean the kate jack sawyer story is interesting enough the others are, are interesting enough. I'd much rather see, you know, time travel Jesus Desmond. Uh, I'd rather be exploring that much more. I'd rather be hearing Hurley's wisecracks. Uh, I'd love to see where Echo was up to after, uh, you know, being nursed back to health last week. Uh, I'd love to see um, the more lock Echo stuff. Now, I mean, granted, I'm saying this with the, uh, the first-time viewer hat on. I know that Echo's time is much... Uh, you know, it is being counted down here, and uh, there isn't much left of him. But it's, you know, I'd rather be at the Survivor's Beach. I'd rather be, you know, seeing more of Nikki and Paolo, even though, uh, you know, the, the, the characters don't ever quite take off. Fine, let's have characters that we don't like dealing with characters that we do. Not kind of, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of a meh episode, but let's look at Lostpedia. Perhaps that will... Uh, Brighten our spirits, eh? Uh, the episode, the Lostpedia says this, The episode shows Ben using a rabbit as a trick to con Sawyer. Of Mice and Men is referred to, and a character in the novel called Lenny has an obsession with rabbits. Another bit from Lostpedia is uh, this. This is the second episode to draw its title from a line of Jack's speech to the survivors in White Rabbit. Irony, irony. Every man for himself is not going to work. If we can't live together, we're going to die alone. So, there you go. Uh, Penultimately, from Lostpedia, in Left Behind, we learned that it was Kate who advised Cassidy to turn Sawyer in for ripping her off, although they never refer to Sawyer by name. Last but not least, uh, Kate and Aaron visited Cassidy and Clementine after Kate's return from the island. Kate told Sawyer that Clementine was growing fast, a sweet kid was already developing a little attitude. That is in the episode, whatever happened, happened. So the continued interestingness of Cassidy to come, I guess. Okay. Let's look ahead as well, though, shall we? Next week will be episode 305. That is the cost of living. And uh, good news is we get more of the Echo stuff that I was looking forward to. 
The downside is it's the final Echo episode ever, in part because that jerky, jerky man wouldn't, uh, you know, wanted a ton more money than they were offering him to appear in the uh, finale church scene. So, say la vie, and we'll say adios and au revoir to Mr. Echo. If you'd like to share feedback, you can uh, say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. Send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. So with that, thank you very much for listening, as always. I hope you enjoyed this. Even though I wasn't uh, particularly keen on the episode, it's always great fun to be getting together with you, and I always appreciate your listenership. Quick reminder, too, you can uh, follow the adventures of myself and a couple other guys on the Alcatraz podcast by phgeek.com, where we are uh, thoroughly enjoying uh, that episode. We just did uh, episode 107 this past Monday, and uh, it's getting good. Certainly could use your use your viewership as ratings have gone down a bit, but I understand DVR numbers are quite strong, so watch Alcatraz, get caught up, watch it live. And uh, back to Lost, though. I will see you all again next week for episode 305, The Cost of Living. Take care, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>